We are a people who love games. I think we could all agree we've just been obsessed with the Olympic Games, which now come to a close. And without getting too much into the idea of game theory, there's a simple truth about games. There are winners and there are losers. There's no way around this. I'm sure if I asked you what your favorite game is to play, you would be able to rattle off a quick list of things you have played in the past or even enjoy to play now. One of my favorite games of all time is chess. Chess is a very simple objective. The objective of chess is to topple the enemy king. And you must accomplish this task within a certain set of, of rules, such as how the pieces move, how turns work, how to take another piece. But it doesn't matter how many pieces you kidnap on the board, as long as at the end of the game you are the first to cry out, checkmate, and you get a knock over the enemy king. And as a kid especially, imagine each board as this adventure filled with awe and wonder. It was more than just moving around some figurines. It was, it was this battlefield of glory that I got to participate in. Now in our world today, uh, we live in a world where games have become more sophisticated, more complex, and in the virtual sphere, more graphically realistic. But it's amazing how many games find their foundation in chess. From kids playing in the backyard war or football or baseball, a series of moves and counter moves. Many video games take this to an extreme and they call these games, it's a genre on its own, called empire building where you get to play as king and create your own little world and destroy all the other little worlds. Even Monopoly. You might not have little troops in Monopoly, but it's economic dominance. You do everything you can to leave your opponents in ruins and perhaps even your family, as you win this economic empire. There's winners and there's losers in this great quest for glory. Now, chess captured my heart at a very young age. I'd play with my father. But when I was in fifth grade, I joined chess club. And that year, I went 42 and 0. I was awesome. And I don't think, I, I promise you, it's not just nostalgia. I was really good. And I played the final game. I played in the championship game. And I was playing Bradley Loth. And I had already beat Bradley Loth three times that season. And so this was just a shoe. And it was just a formality. Just like Sweden and USA curling, if anyone paid attention. Uh, it was just a formality. And then I noticed it too late. I had left my left, I remember it like it was yesterday. I left my left flank exposed and I had this log jam of pieces on the right. So when he moved into position and cried out checkmate, I was broken. I lost one game all year. After conquering dozens of foreign nations and toppling dozens of foreign kings, here I was with my kingdom in ruins. My perfect season destroyed. My kingdom fallen. But that's how chess, or for that matter, any game must end in defeat. And we can brush it off. We say, well, you can't win them all, and so we move on. We're talking about the Olympics, when the Canadians finished in second to the USA. USA! Okay. When the Canadians finished second, we got all upset that one of these women took off her medal right away, her silver medal, because it wasn't good enough. Why? She realized she wasn't the winner. All the hours, all the practice, all the sacrifices, and she knew anything short of gold is losing. 
It's still bad sportsmanship, but she got what this is about. And this is how chess, chess must end. One nation falls. This is how all things end. Perhaps I'm wrong in saying most games find their foundation in chess. Perhaps it would be better to say chess and most games find their foundation in real life. Nations rise, nations fall. This is how human life simply plays out. A a series of moves and counter moves in history. A king cannot rule forever. And that's the truth of the matter. And so have fallen some of the greatest nations of all time. And in the center of their cities, in the midst of their toppled ruins, lie these stadiums in homage to games now long gone. It's no wonder the Jews were trying to play chess in their own way. A competition of my king is greater than your king. Imagine their disappointment when they got Jesus. He wasn't some ruler. He didn't bring together some mass army. And so this man who was recognized right from the beginning as a king. The wise sages from the east, they come over, they say he is a king. They pay homage to him as if he's a king. Herod takes it seriously that he's a king, so much so that Herod makes his move and kills all children under two in his city to try to secure his throne for his kingdom. And so Jesus is a man who then proclaims a kingdom not of this world. One which could not be seen or perceived by some great show of military might. One that did not seek to topple other nations, but desired to restore them. One that came and decided to play by a different set of rules that none of us had ever heard of or ever even believed existed. And while others sought to destroy him, he decided not to fight back, but to lay down his life. Even though he had the power to summon an entire angel army to his defense. Instead of playing by our rules, he had a kingdom that called out to the world, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Rest from this game that you're all trying to win. And instead of being focused on winning and losing, Jesus said, be, simply be who you are. Be my son, be my daughter, be with me. It's so simple. It's so hard. Because we lose faith in a kingdom we cannot see. And so we pray thy kingdom come. Not because God's kingdom is dependent on our acknowledgement of his existence. God's kingdom comes no matter what. No matter what you say or what anyone else says, God's kingdom comes. It is because he is God and his kingdom always is. But what we pray is that we would see this kingdom and live within this kingdom. The Pharisees can't see it. They asked Jesus, when is this kingdom going to come? Roman occupation is suffocating. When will that occupation be lifted? When will the throne of David finally be restored to all of its greatness? So the Pharisees make this move to destroy Jesus, hoping that maybe that will usher in a new kingdom. 
or at least not shake what's already there. But if you go through Israel's history, every time they had kings, things go horribly wrong. Their kings played by the same rules of everyone else, and they lost a lot. It rarely ever went well. The kings tried to build their own kingdom, and they consistently left God out of the the question, out of the picture, out of the reality of it all. So they turned to idols. And countless nations came in and occupied Israel, occupied their land. More of the same. And if we're honest, it's hard to see the kingdom even in our own lives around as we look at the world. We look at the nations of the world and it's not hard to ask the question, where is God in all of this? In the countless nations at war, in the death of many, in the tragedy, in the suffering, the rise and fall of nations, each consumed with this idea of winning. Winning what? Something that's forever elusive. Nations attacking the very premise of of life and humanity, what it means to be human. Other nations seeking to actively destroy and eliminate Christianity from their lands completely. And how many of us in the silence of our minds, embarrassed or ashamed or afraid to admit, have cried out, God, why aren't you doing anything? If you're king, why don't you care? Why don't you stop this all, this insanity, the craziness, the absurdity of the world? Why don't you do something? And I could leave it there that we're just upset at some global injustice. But I challenge you, do you even see the kingdom of God in your own personal life? I sometimes feel like the peasant in Monty Python, who when King Richard comes and says, I'm your king, he says, you're not my king. I didn't vote for you. As if that's what God requires. Such silly concessions as a vote. Are we not all trying to win at life? For those of you who can remember this far back when you were in school, you tried to get good grades. You tried to perhaps even beat out your peers to win and get the best grade to be able to go forward with the most success. Or maybe you were in pursuit of the social game, right? You wanted to win the most friends, the most recognition, the most popularity and whatever it would take. Or perhaps you tried winning on the field of competition, And so you would make sacrifices to get off the bench and onto the field to be noticed. And we quickly learned in school you couldn't do them all. And so some get set to the wayside while others kind of are elevated. I had a football coach. He said, there are books, there are babes, and there is football. You can only have two of them and it better be books and football. You can't do them all real well. So then all that you did is set yourself up for college or a career or military. And then you kept trying to win. You tried to stand out. You tried to gain the respect of your peers and your professors to be noticed, to be highlighted, to be important. So that when all was said and done, you had the degree or you got the promotion or you got the best paying job possible. And if you got into the the thing we call the dating game and you wanted to win the hand of someone else, that you perhaps never even felt you deserved, someone who was, quote-unquote, out of your league. And so maybe you won, maybe you lost, but you just go on to the next phase of life, a job. And so you work hard hours. Why? To be noticed, to win. 
And again, you win over and against your, your co-workers. Sure, they're nice and they're kind, but if there's only one spot for a promotion, you want that, and you'll do everything you can to elevate yourself to that position, even at the cost of others. Or we look for a new job and we leave an employer who's been nice to us because this one pays better or offers better benefits or offers more upward mobility. And we make sacrifices when we need, whatever it takes. And when it fails or when it falls apart, it's easy to blame the system or someone else. Or our children. How many of us are trying to win the game of children? Right? We want our kids to be the best, the smartest, the fastest, the greatest, the coolest, the nicest, the kindest. And we try to make them all the things we never were. And we're disappointed when they don't live up to what we see on Facebook where everyone's best and photoshopped life is put on display and we're upset our kids aren't that. We want them to become their own king, their own queen, to be the boss of themselves, to have freedom unthinkable. And if we win on all these things, we get to do something called retirement. Congratulations, you've made it. As if retirement is the greatest good, to be able to now do whatever you want to rest from all those years of work if you've been able to make it to your mid-60s. And now you can spend all your money resting and relaxing, and you've truly won. The most retired people I've met aren't doing that. They're working hard still. Each move, calculated and intentional, to try to stay in this game as long as possible, as if that was the ultimate good. But what have we really won? I think far more of us would say we've just burned so many years of our lives. And it's just gone in the blink of an eye. Snatched up from us. And we don't feel like we've won anything. Just more worries and anxieties and frustrations and fears. We don't pray thy kingdom come in order that God's kingdom comes. It's already here. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you won't be able to say, look, here it is or there it is. It's already now in the midst of us, even today. We pray that we see and recognize his kingdom. To stop being so obsessed with building a kingdom and instead resting in the kingdom that's already been won for us. Is it okay in your life to lose? To lose in this game we call life. Can you imagine if the martyrs were more concerned with staying in the game than a faithful witness? When Stephen was, was martyred, when he was stoned to death in Acts, he looks up to heaven and he doesn't, he doesn't go to heaven with, with a begrudging heart. Oh, I wish I was here a little bit longer. He goes with joy and hope as the kingdoms are, the, the heavens are open and he sees the kingdom. He sees it. He puts all of his hope in it. So how does this kingdom come even to us? Well, the kingdom comes where the Spirit comes to us, and the Spirit comes to us in the waters of baptism. This is just Luther's small catechism. And why does he give us the Spirit? Why does, do we need the Spirit? The Spirit helps us believe his holy word, to have faith in it, to trust his word, that it is true. And his Spirit helps us live godly lives, both here in time, and there in eternity. It's a both now and in the future thing we're looking at. If we keep trying to win, I can promise you exhaustion and worry and anxiety and fear and depression and paranoia. You will never win. But if you're okay with losing in this life, 
you will gain a kingdom. And I can promise you a king who is gracious and merciful. Who offers rest for the weary and forgiveness for the wicked. I can promise you a a king who offers you more than some game. He offers you life, true life, life eternal. He offers you a spirit of life and hope. A kingdom which offers healing. A kingdom which offers rest. A king who chooses to treat his people as his children. As his beloved sons and daughters. Who does not forget, abandon, or forsake them. That is a kingdom worth living for. That is a kingdom worth dying for. And that is a kingdom that God offers to us now that we would only see it as we pray even today. Thy kingdom come, O Lord. We are not asking God to raise up our own kingdom building. But for us to find peace in His. Where He lives and reigns now and forever, and where he calls us to live and reign with him now and forever, and to life eternal. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.